Welcome to the latest on LIBOR transition. This is PwC's podcast series on all things LIBOR and why it's so difficult to transition away from it. I'm your host, Laura Dalvidia, and I'll be chatting with LIBOR experts on the recent developments and what they mean to the market. In this episode, I'm sitting in our virtual studio with PwC's Head of Banking, Conduct Risk and Regulation, Naseem Danishadi, and uh, Sergen Jamal, Senior Manager and SME on IBOR transition. They both support a number of firms identifying, managing and mitigating conduct risks. This is one of the key issues regulators are concerned about at the moment. So how to ensure that the customers are treated fairly during and after the transition. So it's great to cover this topic today. Welcome both. Hey, thanks for having me back, Laura. Thanks, Laura. It's great to be here. Nas, before we move on to conduct risk, I have to quickly ask you about the recent announcements from the FCA and others on IBOS end dates. So just to recap, um, we heard in early March that the publication of most currencies and tenors will end in December this year. This is apart from one, three and six month dollar settings, which will continue to be published until mid-2023. And in addition, the FCA continues to consult on synthetic LIBOR for tough legacy contracts for most use sterling and yen tenors, and may also do the same for uh, the dollar tenors as well later. The market has now had a bit of time to think about this. What's been the response so far? What have you heard? Yeah, thanks, Laura. Look, the announcement was pretty closely aligned to what we expected, but it's still important to get that confirmation on cessation timelines because those cessation timelines do have the effect of fixing the ISDA spread and providing that much-needed certainty on the spreads between the LIBORs and the RFRs for transition of legacy LIBOR contracts. Also importantly, it provides another natural connection point between sell and buy side on transition, instigating more outreach on legacy transition. On the trading volumes front, um, we have seen a spike in interest rate swap Sonia trading post the announcement. Notably, um, Sonia interest rate swap notionals and maturities of five years or more saw a marked increase following the FCA announcement. This is all a clear indication that the transition is gaining momentum in UK derivative markets. As you mentioned, we did already know, Laura, that the three US dollar tenors were likely to continue for longer than the others, allowing more of the US dollar LIBOR legacy book to run off. So no real surprises there. But what is important to remember here is that regulators still expect the new use of US dollar LIBOR to cease by the end of the year. To circle back to your question, transition efforts will accelerate across the market, helped by the added clarity from this announcement. Regulators will keep the pressure high, and more importantly, clients are going to want to see their LIBOR exposures minimized, either whether that's through active conversion or robust fallback language. So we've got some much needed clarity now and we can build the maturity of the jigsaw based on that. But what are the key pieces you can't quite see yet? Yeah, the first I'd say is there are still questions around synthetic LIBOR. As you mentioned earlier, the FCA will consult more on this in Q2 of this year. But I wouldn't encourage anyone to rely on that as a primary solution. 
What we do know is that the FCA will consult on the development of synthetic LIBOR for one, three and six month sterling LIBOR and for one, three and six month Japanese LIBOR for one additional year. They've also not taken the use of synthetic LIBOR off the table for US dollars. It's still unclear, though, on what the exact use cases will be for use of synthetic LIBOR, and that'll get clarified through the consultation process. Another area of uncertainty, I'd say, is the legal safe harbor, um, which will be provided for contracts that end up on synthetic LIBOR, whether that will happen and the scope of the safe harbor. HM Treasury has put out in February a consultation on this, um, so that's yet to be concluded. Um, there are also look, some product-specific challenges that still exist and provide uncertainty with transition. Um, one I'd call out is syndicated loans where there are multiple parties involved. There are agents, leads, participants, and this can make um, roles and responsibilities and clarity around who's doing what more complex. Also, with jurisdictional differences between alternative rates and fallbacks makes the changes of multi-currency contracts a complex area, which people are still trying to work out. And of course, bonds and getting consent solicitations over the line is also an area of continuing concern on how that will actually get done. Lastly, I'd say the US market is probably where there are the most missing pieces, Laura. And the US liquidity of SOFA, whilst increasing, is still low. And it's hard to see exactly when this will um, increase, given a wait and see approach that's being taken in the US. There's also still lack of clarity on the rate that will be used, um, whether that's SOFA, there's still a lot of talk on a credit sensitive rate, and also the availability of US term rates is still an open question. So those would be the missing pieces. So in summary, plenty of work to do across the board. Yes, there definitely is. And um, I'd probably add there's still a fair amount of work to do before the end of this year to operationalize everything as well. And, and conduct risk management is, is one of these, these areas. Sergen, you've been working on the ground, leading programs at various clients. What makes this such a challenging part of the transition? That's right, Laura. Conduct risk is at the forefront of concerns for many eyeball program leads. Um, if I actually take a step back and compare eyeball transition as an initiative, say, to other large-scale transition programs that we've all worked on previously, such as Brexit, for example, um, one thing that stands out to me about LIBOR transition is that it will, of course, inevitably result in economic impacts, given that the replacement rates that we're moving on to are not equivalent to LIBOR. So um, it's very important important to acknowledge that when actually transitioning away from LIBOR, we're not simply replacing like for like. Risk-free rates are fundamentally different to LIBOR, both structurally and economically. So when we are transitioning those existing positions, this may indeed lead to winners and losers in the market. And of course, if clients are on the losing end of that equation, then this could lead to concerns around conduct risks and whether they were indeed um, managed appropriately. So what firms need to be able to do is demonstrate that they've treated customers fairly during the transition process. And many regulators, particularly here in the UK, for example, the FCA has been very vocal and has emphasized the needs of uh, minimizing those value transfers during transition.
And what about new business? What's the impact there? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so there are indeed other conduct risks that need to be managed for new business specifically, particularly where firms continue to write new contracts that reference LIBOR or any other demising rate for that matter. Um, and especially where those contracts do not contain adequate fallback provisions or perhaps adequate disclosures that are being issued to clients. There are, of course, industry target dates that we, we're all aware of that have been recommended by the relevant working groups to cease new business linked to LIBOR, such as the end of Q1 milestone this year to cease offering new GBP LIBOR linked business. So it's very important that firms have appropriate governance in place around new LIBOR business um, and those demising rates and ensure that they're controlling this in line with regulatory expectations while also balancing the needs of their clients. Hopefully, most firms have already adopted plans to minimise and mitigate the risks. But if they aren't quite there yet, what are the key steps they should be taking right now? That's right. Um, so most firms, as you say, Laura, would have already embedded conduct risk considerations into their LIBOR programmes, at least in some shape or form. Um, for example, some firms have opted to have dedicated conduct risk work streams that focus on the identification and mitigation of those risks. While on the other hand, other firms have effectively embedded conduct risks and considerations within other work streams within the programme. When I actually take a step back and think about where we are today in transition with uh, less than a year to go, I think most firms should already have completed their conduct risk assessments across their businesses and products and have a really good understanding of those mitigating actions and controls that need to be in place. Just to give an example, firms should already have in place controls and policies around value transfer and how this will be minimised. Some firms have found actually relying on BAU controls off the shelf may not necessarily mitigate all the risks given of course with LIBOR transition there are a lot of uncertainties particularly in relation to credit spread adjustments and of course which approach to use and, and we're yet to see um, a single form of credit spread adjustment um, be used consistently in the market. This means that specific controls for LIBOR transition may indeed be needed in addition to leveraging some of those BAU controls. And in parallel with your internal activities, uh, presumably you also need to reach out to your customers, right? Absolutely. Um, client communications uh, is going to be key to ensuring customers are treated fairly, Laura. Um, and firms um, uh, that we're working with are considering different ways of providing adequate communications and disclosures to those clients, especially during those bilateral conversations around transition. When it comes to client communications, I think the fundamental point that I want to make is that a one-size-fits-all approach may not necessarily provide some of the perhaps less sophisticated clients with enough information for them to be able to make informed decisions around which transition option is right for them. If I play devil's advocate here for a bit, what's the worst case scenario for banks and other institutions if they fail to manage these risks? Yep, yeah, it's a very good question. Um, I think the worst case scenario is where firms find themselves in situations where perhaps conflicts of interests cannot be appropriately managed, which ultimately will result in client detriment. If clients are on the losing end of this transition, this is, of course, going to create doubts as to whether the client was treated fairly and indeed whether the firm actually took the necessary steps to be able to mitigate those conduct risks. Clients could potentially feel they were encouraged to transition at the wrong time, for example, or perhaps using the wrong method, which when they look back retrospectively, 
may not have been in their best interest. In these cases, I think, Laura, it's very likely that client disputes and complaints could arise, which could ultimately indeed lead to litigation cases further down the line. So this is why transparency is so important during client discussions to ensure that those information asymmetries are appropriately managed. Thanks. Um, Nas, I hear litigation risk mentioned a lot, but how real is that risk, really? Are we actually going to see these cases in courts from next year? Yeah, I'm, I agree with Sergen. It's definitely um, a real risk. There's always going to be um, economic transfer considerations with this transition and conflicts of interest that will naturally arise. This is also why um, HM Treasury consulted on the introduction of the safe harbour approach for tough legacy contracts and also why the UK RFR working group is consulting on whether it should recommend a successor rate to GBP LIBOR for bonds. Regulators and other stakeholders are also trying to support the market to transition away from LIBOR without legal or conduct issues. But the message is still clear. Firms need to ensure conduct risks are identified up front and appropriately mitigated throughout the transition. And, and based on that, what's the main advice you'd give to firms right now? Um, I would say early planning, investment into identifying your conduct risks and your mitigating actions is going to be key. Conduct risk also must be embedded into the eyeball program as opposed to being looked at in a separate framework in isolation by compliance and other functions. Senior managers under um, the SMR re regime in the UK also have to have adequate oversight over all the risks and firms who can demonstrate that conduct risks have been considered at all stages of transition, well documented, will be in a much better position to justify their actions to clients or indeed regulators. And that's a great conclusion. Thank you both for your time today. And many thanks to our listeners. As always, if you have any questions, please get in touch. And you can also sign up to our semi-monthly market update newsletter, which covers the latest developments globally. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast as well for future episodes. But for now, that's all from me. Thank you, everyone.